CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Have you ever wondered where medical innovation really happens? From Offscript Health, welcome to Before We Die, the podcast where you'll meet the medtech innovators who will share the hurdles, successes, and heartbreaking failures in getting their products to patients before we die. I'm Joey Brenneman from Offscript Health. Now, this is not a podcast about death and dying, quite the opposite. It is about the amazing technological advances in the medical industry that could potentially save lives. And this is part two of our conversation with neurosurgeon, Dr. Nick Hopkins. In this episode, we're talking about the Jacobs Institute for Medical Innovation in Buffalo, New York, that Dr. Hopkins was instrumental in founding. Dr. Hopkins conceived a new way to organize the multidisciplinary treatment of vascular disease, and he brought experts from around the world together to design the Jacobs Institute. But first... Let's say hello to our Before We Die creators and panel of experts. Hello, Sandra Miller. Hi, Joey. And hey, John McMahon. Hey, Joey. And hello, Craig Allman. Hi, Joey. All right, so Sandy, what can you tell us about the Jacobs Institute? One of the reasons why we wanted to devote a whole episode to this institute is because it's another form of innovation. This is a model that maybe will inspire other institutes and hospitals and so forth to be innovative in similar ways, because there have been lots of amazing things that have happened at the Jacobs Institute for Medical Innovation. I was actually there when it and talked with Nick when he was still at his old hospital, and it was just in its inception. It's one of those rare opportunities where exactly what they were talking about hoping to do has happened. They wanted to try and bring together different disciplines that in other hospitals are in silos. They're in silos for business reasons. They're in silos for ego reasons. They're just structured in a really different way. And true to Nick's vision, you know, all those walls are torn down figuratively and literally at the Jacobs Institute. So just to be clear, there's this one big building in Buffalo. And the first bunch of floors are the Gates Vascular Institute. And they're the ones who actually have the hospital do the surgeries. And what's unique about them is that they do neurological procedures and vascular procedures. So if you have a stroke, uh, they'll work on that because that's essentially kind of vascular issues. And then in the same building on a different floor above it, is the Jacobs Institute. And the Jacobs Institute is focused on med tech innovation in that vascular space. And also they train physicians. And in fact, it's probably the leading training service for neurosurgeons in the world. So the idea is to get synergy between those two institutions by putting them in the same building, having them interrelate, but they have very different purposes. All right, so let's get to it. Here's our conversation with Dr. Nick Hopkins about the Jacobs Institute for Medical Innovation. 
Hello again, Dr. Nick Hopkins. We are so excited to talk today about the Jacobs Institute for Medical Innovation and to steal a phrase from their website, the Jacobs Institute fosters collisions among physicians, engineers, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders all under one roof. And this amazing place was your idea. And as we learned in the previous episode, this was your also your personal way of working to cross over into different disciplines and learn from them and ultimately innovate the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of neurovascular disease like stroke. So Nick, can you just help us understand what was the initial motivation? What was sort of the genesis of the Jacobs Institute? The concept arose from the meeting we just talked about a while ago, which was the Failure Analysis Advisory Council, where we invited a small group of thought leaders from different disciplines, and we all interacted, shared our worst complications. I was really impressed by the need for interdisciplinary interactions and the fact that we could all help each other. We get so locked in our own uh, silos in hospitals because we're all busy. I mean, I was two floors and quarter of a mile away from cardiology in the old hospital. And it was similar with, with the, the other disciplines. So it was a matter of realizing that there were great benefits from interaction among the different disciplines in vascular disease. I mean, we're all working on the same blood vessels. So then a very dear friend, Larry Jacobs, who was a very famous neurologist having invented beta interferon uh, as the treatment of choice for relapsing multiple sclerosis. Then after that, he became an international hero. If I may, Nick, I really view this as a tale of brotherly love set in the city of Buffalo where one brother is this phenomenal scientist, the other is this exceptional businessman. And so if you stick with me for a minute, I can help set it up. You're referring to your colleague and friend, Dr. Larry Jacobs. He's a really a pioneer in the treatment for multiple sclerosis, which, like stroke, is far too common in Buffalo. And Larry Jacobs, this brother, led the trials for the first MS drug treatment ever developed that was interferon, which is for over 20 years, that treatment has been the number one treatment for MS globally. On the other hand is his brother, Jerry. And Jerry's known in Buffalo uh, pretty much uniformly as the chairman. And he runs a company called Delaware North, and they are in charge of concessions really around the world, stadiums, airports. Wherever you look, they're there. And they're the largest private concessionaires, I believe, in the U.S. And as a side project, he also owns the Boston Bruins. But unfortunately, Larry, the scientist brother, died young from cancer in 2001. And Jerry wanted to do something to memorialize his fallen brother. And after about four years they just weren't satisfied with what was going on in the neurology department. Then a couple of family members asked me if I would help. And I said, well, sure. Of course, Larry was a great friend. And they wanted to do a neuroscience center. And I said, well, not interested. Neuroscience centers are a dime a dozen. They're all over the country. And and you get a consultant and they, they basically have already got it on their word processor. They just punch a button and spit out the business plan, charge you a lot of money. I, I had a meeting with Jerry Jacobs in his conference room. I remember the conference table was so big, I had trouble recognizing him at the far end of the table. (laughs) And and he said, well, what do you want to do? And I told him, and he looked at me, he thought about it for a minute, and he said, 
no, I don't know what I want to do. I'll see you around. And he walked out. <laughs> and so I didn't know what was going to happen. But his family started kind of working on it. And they hired some consultants. And they finally found a group in Chicago, the Tiber Group. And the guy that was the consultant from Tiber, who made you know, three or four trips to Buffalo, and finally, on the third or fourth trip, he looked at me and he said, okay, I get it. I understand what you want to do. So what is what is this? What is it that you you wanted to do? You didn't want to do a neuro institute. What is it that you wanted to do? What was your vision? I wanted to build a multidisciplinary vascular center, a building focused totally on vascular disease. I wanted all of the the clinical work on the bottom floors, so emergency room, ORs, cath labs, all that stuff, and then a, a, an outpatient uh, facility because most of these patients with catheter-based procedures are outpatients. And then on the top floors, I wanted the scientists. That meant the university. And that meant getting the hospital completely separate to be willing to sit down and talk to the university. And as you know, universities are pretty insular in a lot of cases, but we had a very willing you know, administrative team at both the hospital and the university. And eventually they came together and agreed that we should do this together. And then the third part was I wanted an innovation center because I figured, hell, if we're going to mix all these disciplines together, we're going to get ideas and innovation. And isn't that the essence of, of what we want to do? So Jerry Jacobs found us a world-class architect by the name of uh, Mirdad Yastani, we got 20 of the guys that I thought were the most innovative. We sat around our conference table for like three days with Merdad. And after the first morning, he looked at us with a big smile and he said, you know what? I know what you want. You want collisions. You want to be forced to bump into each other. All you different disciplines, the scientists and the clinicians. He said, I can do that. He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build you guys a club sandwich. We said, oh, really? <laughs> and so he put... All of the clinical departments on the lower four floors and all the sciences, the UB scientists on the upper floors and the Jacobs Institute was sandwiched in the middle. And he called the Jacobs Institute the meat and his club sandwich. <laughs> and, and that was the design. And by golly, we got everybody to sign off on it. We got the building built. It turned out to be a you know a city, a huge city block, three hundred million dollar building that uh, nobody had ever seen or heard of before, and it all came from that meeting, that failure analysis meeting. And then doors opened exactly ten years ago. We're in our tenth year celebration right now. That's awesome. Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> that is such a big, clear vision. Like like that's a huge vision, and that you stood by it, and such a clear vision that you had, and adding all those people to have it come together. So what did it feel like when you actually looked up and saw the physical building of your vision? What was that moment like for you? You know what? I, I was overwhelmed. I said, Jesus, this thing actually happened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a really a wonderful vision that came true. You know, you have visions all the time. Most of them don't ever come true. This one just did. And I mean, the building's now won, oh, just after two years, I know we had already won 19 major design awards. And now there are people coming from all over the world to see it. But nobody's been able to reproduce it the way we did it. And it's, you know, it's a lot of constraints. First of all, it's 
huge. No medical center wants to carve out that much space or that much money. Nobody's been able to copy us, which is so far. And how are the collisions? Like, are the collisions happening? Every day, because if you want a cup of coffee between cases and you're a cardiologist or a vascular surgeon or a radiologist or a neuro guy, you got nowhere to go but out into the core area. And all the cath labs are in a circle around the core area. So if you want your coffee, you're going to go out into the core area. Or you can come up into the Jacobs Institute where you can get a you know a really fancy latte or cappuccino. But all those places are gathering places <laughs> for people to come together and hang out and share ideas. That's something that. you just don't get at most institutions. So the geography has forced the interactions. That's been fantastic for us. So one of the things I think of that... From a timing standpoint, so Buffalo was going through a renaissance, so you could get a footprint big enough, and then you had that backing of the Jacobs family. Boy, you, you know, you made the most of that, because I know now you're surrounded by a number of other uh, key facilities in cancer research and so forth. You've really been in a hub now for research, and it's been a pleasure every time I've gone there. I, I want to come back soon. The Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus has been a wonderful story. It started in the year 2000. There were 2,000 employees working on the medical campus. Today, we're pushing 25,000. The Jacobs Institute was fairly early in the process. And then brand new Children's Hospital, uh, brand new Roswell Park, the Cancer Hospital, and all kinds of uh, absolutely amazing stuff that's happening there. And it's it's just a, a wonderful hub for everything that that is med medical in Western New York. I've been up there in the early 3D printing labs. If you had a really tricky problem and a tricky anatomy, you could actually print it and practice on it. One, most of these 3D printing shops, they, they do good stuff, but they don't have the constant clinical input. And in our shop, they got it in spades. And all the different disciplines are there all the time working with them. The 3D printing is used to develop new products. It's used to teach. It's used if there's a particularly challenging medical problem, like a patient with a really difficult structural heart problem, and we'll build the heart for the cardiologist. And then they can practice on that heart in a really very real type 3D printed environment. And it took our engineers several years to develop the polymer technology that, that makes it feel when you put a catheter in these models, it feels like the real deal. So that's our kind of our secret sauce is we can make almost anything we want and make it pretty close to the real human situation. And do you then give that 3D printed heart to the patient when they leave and says, you know, <laughs> it's sort of a memento? It's a good question, John. I don't know what they do with it when they're done with it. Can you talk about how the Jacobs Institute engages and educates with the medical device industry? Everything we do involves the engineers and the clinicians. The beauty of working with industry is somebody comes to us with a new idea from industry, and we've got several go ongoing. Our team will take a good look at it and say, can we do this? Can we make this? If the answer is yes, then we'll work out some kind of a deal with industry. We're, the JAI is not-for-profit. So we have no interest in commercializing anything. Our goal is to take nascent ideas and turn them into technology that has proof of principle. And then to lateral it to industry, to let, let somebody else commercialize it. But then doesn't the Jacobs Institute lose out? The benefit we can get from that is that we'll make a deal with the, the inventor and we'll say, look, this is going to be a big project. It's going to take us three, four years to do this. 
So we want 10% of your company for the Jacobs Institute. So if it's successful in the marketplace and it gets sold to a big company, we're going to get 10% of the payout, which is potentially very exciting. But then I could put my knee pads away and stop begging for money all the time. <laughs> then we would have a, an ongoing source of revenue. And probably we're probably a couple more years away from realizing yeah, that time. kind of revenue. Yeah, it takes time. But that's kind of the business model. The nomenclature it gets is an evergreen approach. So JI is putting money in, it's doing work, it's got the talent, and if it's successful, it allows them to continue to do that. So I imagine there's not many hospitals that are doing that outside of you and I guess the Fogarty Institute out west, but I, I assume it's growing. Yeah, they have a different model. They have a great model too. It's just different from ours. But the, the other wonderful part about our relationship with the university is that the scientists upstairs are constantly down in the cath labs working with us and in the Jacobs Institute and coming up with new ideas. And you wouldn't believe the crazy stuff they've come up with. Super high resolution fluoroscopy that gives us resolution previously unheard of. Angiography, thousand frames per second working with with the Jacobs Institute. So the university is getting tremendous benefit from working with our scientists and our clinicians, and we're getting tremendous benefit from working with the university. We have the president of the university and the president of the hospital sitting on our board. So it's a, it's a really uh, wonderful symbiotic relationship we have. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I want to talk a little bit about how you work with the FDA. I think a lot of people don't understand the role of the FDA in innovation, especially when it comes to the med tech industry. You know, one of the things that was spoken about last time I was up there was actually letting the FDA, you know, reviewers understand cases, right? Because they're doing a huge part in our industry, but they're not exposed to a case or the feedback or what's needed and so if they're defensive, and rightfully so, then it slows down that innovation path. Have you been able to cross that line and get the FDA to come and see cases or how have- The JI is a partner of the FDA. We invited them years ago just to come look and see. These guys are not doctors. They're scientists and uh, statisticians, and they don't really have a a clear understanding of what people are doing with these devices when they put them in patients. You know, when they get a huge stack of papers, they got to review and decide whether that device is safe and effective. It's a monumental task. I don't know how the heck they do it. So it's a it's a wonderful uh, collaborative relationship that we have got with the FDA. And we're very, very cautious with that relationship. I mean, people are trying to take advantage of the FDA all the time. We want no part of that. No part of that. We want to be their partner, not anybody trying to fleece them for something. So, Nick, as you sort of, as we sort of step back and sort of look at what the future might look like for the treatment of stroke, 
What are some of the technologies? You know, we we all live in a world with where technology is rapidly accelerating. We have things like artificial intelligence and quantum computing and things like that. Really cool materials. So so when you think about stroke, since you're at the forefront and you see a lot of these new ideas come through the Jacobs Institute, what's sort of the most exciting for you? I think one of the most exciting things about stroke is much more of a holistic approach. So most of the technology that's out there for stroke today is a little dip gadget to open up an artery. But, you know, stroke is far more complicated than that. You could break it down into several segments and there's, you know, detection. You have to be able to detect the possibility of somebody having a stroke. And then there's the acute treatment of the stroke. And that is, you know, all about removing the clot. And then there's ways that you can improve the intervention for stroke. And that, that can cover all kinds of new technology, robotics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the last part is post-stroke care. Nobody's doing much with that. And we need a more holistic approach. To, I'm very excited about that opportunity. The trick for stroke is to treat it at the site, right? Immediately. So how are we going to accomplish that? And so I think the challenge for industry is to make the clot removal so darned easy that any neurosurgeon, neurologist, neuroradiologist, cardiologist, vascular surgeon, radiologist, any of those subspecialties that use catheters can easily go up and remove the clot and fix the patient. And that way you can move the treatment of stroke to the location where it happens. That's the future. Can I roll back one step further? Because you're talking about this from like a physician side and an innovator side. And for patients out there, I think a lot of times, like I've heard many times of people not even recognizing that they've had these strokes or the mini strokes that we were talking about. As a patient, what's our job? What's our responsibility? And what signs should we be looking for and be aware of so that in a lot of ways, we can help you help us. Well, first of all, remember that when you have a stroke, you're going to lose a lot of your cognitive function. We have to teach your friends and family more than we have to teach you. And there, there are all kinds of little mnemonics that people use, face, arm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, speech. But if somebody's acting screwy, then there's a warning there. You know, what, what's screwy about the way they're acting? Are they having trouble talking? Are they having trouble understanding what you're saying to them? Do they have any weakness in, a, in an arm or a leg? You know, are they slurring their speech? Anything that looks different and weird, you, the friends and family, need to be, okay, buddy, out of here. We're taking you to the hospital right now. Even when a patient has had a previous stroke and then they have another one, they won't recognize it. I've seen that over and over again. You had a stroke a year ago. Didn't you know you were having a stroke? No, I thought I'm just going to go to sleep and it's going to go away. It's so obvious, but you lose cognitive function. So Nick, we just have one last thing to ask you about. We've heard about using telehealth for stroke and helping maybe other doctors, sort of doctor to doctor uh, and so forth. Can you share a little bit about that, how that's being used? Telehealth is a huge player in the post-stroke management of patients. Because one of the biggest problems we face in medicine is when somebody's had a stroke, there's no organized system for help, helping him to adjust to his condition and the even bigger one for society. There's no, no concerted and coordinated effort to keep the guy out of the hospital so that he doesn't come back. 
is that's one of the biggest cost factors is people have strokes and then they, they, they're back all the time with one problem or another. And it's how you manage all those problems. And that's why telehealth can be extremely important in helping to develop management systems for post-op stroke. I think we've covered a lot of territory, and I just really want to take a moment to say thank you to you, Dr. Hopkins. This has been really great. I know that on behalf of all of our listeners and our team, we are really appreciative of your time. So thank you. It's been very inspiring. Yeah. My pleasure. My pleasure. Okay, so that that just kind of blew my mind, this this whole idea, the building, the architect, everything. And I just the thing that kept keeps sticking out with me is the that they definitely have changed the value of a cup of coffee. It's not just about the, the coffee, it's about what happens, you know, at the water cooler, at the coffee station, that they put it in this place where if you want a cup of coffee, you gotta go and interact with other people. And so simple, yet so brilliant. You heard Dr. Hopkins say more than once about really good coffee, right? The, 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 fancy, <laughs> yes. the fancy coffee machine. We may laugh about that, but the truth is that it's actually incredibly important. At Stanford, there is a building called the Clark Center for Bioengineering and Sciences, which is um, also has won several awards in architecture, but the building was designed to really promote collisions and interactions with people from different disciplines. And it was really to sort of break out of that mode, whether it's in, in the hospital case where the different clinical specialties don't mix, in Stanford's case with this Clark Center, it had to do with getting different disciplines, scientific and research disciplines. So get the bioengineering folks meeting, mixing with people in physics and people who are actually treating patients and other specialties in engineering and so forth. So one of the things that they did with this building is they purposely placed a Pete's Coffee on the third floor of the building to literally draw people up and into the building. And they also wanted to draw people from across campus and they did things to literally, you know, have openings that reached out to different people, different areas of campus, like the medical school, the engineering school, the business school, et cetera, to literally pull those people in. I thought you were going to say they called the health department <laughs> and all the other coffee shops. No, but, on but it's sort of, you know, we're hearing about. In the case of the Jacobs Institute, they really have been focused on fostering that mixing of disciplines as well. And also, you know, he shared how they've engaged industry in the you know process of medical innovation so that there are effective exchanges between the doctors who are on the front lines and have these you know, treating the patients and have these problems that they, they want to get solved so they can, you know, reach that particular location in the brain that, you know, will help patient A. This is really exciting to hear this example from Dr. Hopkins in and of itself. It's not a device, but these activities of even how you design a building and where you place things and to make that all come together and happen, it takes time. And it takes a lot of vision, and it's certainly being realized at the Jacobs Institute. What we're trying to get out of is the factory model. And this is true in pretty much every form of social organization in the country. The factory model took over in the 20th century, and it's still got a, 
uh, its teeth around us. And the whole idea was to keep everything separate because the collisions that we're talking about in, at the Jacobs uh, Center uh, is exactly what is supposed to be avoided because all of that is technically a waste of time. You want to process the patients, move them into one theater, move them into another one, move them into another one. Everyone's got their own little space. And just like a car in a factory, you just move along the assembly line. That's kind of not the world we live in now. In the 20s and 30s, you know, a hell of a lot of jobs were factory model jobs. And that's not to our benefit because creativity and collaboration is really the rule of the day and how people work and, and how they operate and, and even how they should learn. How do you get out of that model is really hard. And that's what the Jacobs Institute is all about. I grew up in rural Virginia and I knew I wanted to build stuff. And there was a machine shop nearby and there's an amazing welder that had come out of the Navy that I knew. And that was pretty much it. So uh, I ended up in the West Coast. I was fortunate enough in Silicon Valley when I went back to school. If you wanted to make something with a new catheter, I could go find that person really easy because that's what it was happening there. You could ride a bike to a place and, you know, say Dr. Yock's name and they would give you some scrap, you know, tubing and you could go make a prototype. That's a dream place. I got spoiled seeing that connectivity. And Nick has empowered that. I'm a dreamer. I dream at night all the time. Sometimes I dream during the day. <laughs> really? Um, but as an engineer, an innovator, that place is an absolute dream. You don't even need to go outside. You can go upstairs, do animal studies. You can go upstairs, 3D print a real example of, of a case. You can get live streamed into a case while you're in another lab. It's just a blessing to have in, in our community. Well, in the spirit of collaboration and fostering interactions with folks from different points of view, I would like to acknowledge our Before We Die panel of experts, Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman. And to hear more of our own collisions, check out our Lab Before Slab mini episodes where Sandy, John, and Craig geek out about fascinating happenings in the medtech world. As always, our hope is that some of the cutting edge technology that we talk about on this show, like the innovation that is happening at the Jacobs Institute, will be available to the patients who need it before we die. Thanks for listening. Before We Die is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Before We Die is mixed by Kyle Moore. Our Before We Die panel of experts and creators of the show are Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Share your healthcare stories with us and we might just play them on the air in a future episode. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com. <laughs>